Please open your Bibles with me to Isaiah 52. Now, all the scriptures are going to be on the screen, but this is one of those texts I think we ought to have open before us. And if you're one to take, take notes or circle certain words, this would be a good sermon to do that. Just certain words that stand out, that help us navigate our way in a healthy way in this uh, tremendous passage we're looking. There are certain times and places where, and I think you know what I mean, it seems inappropriate to talk, to say anything. There's an atmosphere that is so uh, gripping that silence is appropriate. I felt that way at the garden tomb outside Jerusalem and at Auschwitz death camp in Poland, um, at the tomb of the unknown soldier in Arlington Cemetery. It's only appropriate to be silent. There are certain texts of the Bible that evoke that same sense in me. Maybe there are certain texts that do that for you, and this is one of them. It makes me want to do the equivalent uh, mentally of, that I would do physically, taking off my shoes, because this is holy ground. I, Isaiah prepares prepares people for the message of God, that there is hope coming in spite of their obstinance, in spite of their rejection of God and his commands, even though they're going to be taken away into captivity, first by the Assyrians and then by the Babylonians, the nation's going to fall and people go to a faraway land, a thousand miles away. Nevertheless, God will be true to his covenant and there will be some, a remnant, who are brought back to Jerusalem. And ultimately, there would be one who enters the world in whom we would find life. And our relationship with our Creator could be restored. And when Isaiah writes his prophecy, he includes in his prophecy four songs that scholars call servant songs, called that way because of the, of, the, of the kind of writing they are. They're written in poetic form. And these are servant songs that, that sing of the brilliance of this one who's to come into the world. This particular song, servant song, we're looking at, beginning at the end of chapter 52 of Isaiah's prophecy, in, in, prophecy into 53, has five stanzas. And each stanza tells us something unique about this servant king whose birth we celebrate. Everybody has a king. Now, most people don't know it. We're here claiming that King Jesus is our only king. Now, we wrestle with that, don't we? We say he's our king, and certainly he is, and yet we know the struggling to make sure he stays in that position. There's always a rival king. There's always a rival king. What is second in importance to you will always want to be on the throne, always. That's how it is. But even people who won't acknowledge Jesus, they have some kind of king. But this servant king is the one most worthy of being on the throne of our hearts. He's, he's unique. And this is how he's unique, five ways. First of all, he is triumphant, yet he's appalling. Chapter 52, verses 13 to 15. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted, just as there were many who were appalled at him. 
His appearance was so disfigured beyond that, beyond that of any human being, and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. This word wisely in Hebrew language means successfully. In other words, he's going to triumph. He's going to get done what he came to do. Even though there were evaluators in Jesus' day who thought he was the most unlikely one to do what he came to do because they thought he was coming to do what they wanted him to do, and that is overthrow Rome and be a political king. Verse 14 says that he was, he was appalling, appalling. Uh, this Hebrew word was used to describe cities that had been ravaged by the enemy. They were left in rubble. They were totally destroyed. When, it's, when that word appalled in the Hebrew language is used of a person, it means that, that the person who is looking at the disfigured one is so repulsed they want to vomit. That's what this word is about. In his death, Jesus was disfigured. He was marred beyond recognition. This servant king didn't look human anymore. He dealt with death in such, such a way that people were sickened when they saw him. He was cut off from, this, from living among those who were alive. He was hanged from a tree. There was no appearance of him overcoming anything at that point. The disciples fled to their, their rooms. They, 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 they didn't know what to do. Their whole world was falling apart. So there was nothing triumphant feeling about this occasion. Now, this is extremely important for us in life, friends, because I run into people all the time in the Christian journey who say, I can't believe this is happening to me. I can't believe that I'm going through all this pain. I go to church and I serve and I pray and I read my Bible. And why am I going through this pain? Why is this happening? Because the Christian life is a part, I mean, it's described as in our own experience of being a mixture of, of storms and calm. That's the nature of the life that we live. You have trouble with what's happening to you ever in the area of pain. All you have to look at the, is at the crucified one. Just look at him. It's been true always of God's servants. You look at Joseph in the Old Testament in the book of Genesis, and he's in a pit being terribly treated, and then he lands in the palace, honored by God because of his faithfulness and obedience, second in command in all of Egypt. You look at God's servant Job, who was wealthy, many children, flocks, herds, had anything a man could want, and yet he's struck, struck by this grave illness, ends in, in such despair, wondering if God was noticing him. Of course, at the end of his journey, he realizes the greatness and the goodness of God and the faithfulness of God. But it was, his life was a mixture of, of the tempest, the storms, and the, and the calm. It happened to Elijah. Elijah's on, on top of Mount Carmel. Great victory for the Lord. Conquers, kills, Baal, the false gods. Then he gets to the valley of despair and says, God, just kill me. Take my life. I don't want to live anymore. Now, maybe your life doesn't sound as dramatic as that. But it has its drama, doesn't it? And it has its pain. You keep your eyes fastened on this servant king. And you watch him. And the way he suffered, and I tell you what God will do is make you triumphant 
in the midst of your journey of despair and wondering if God cares or notices where you are. He does notice. He sees. This king is worthy of our worship. The servant king is also ordinary, yet astounding. Ordinary, yet astounding. Verses 1 through 3 of 53 say, Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Well, the truth is, very few believe his message. Even those in your, in your realm, right, have a hard time believing the message. The arm of the Lord is about the power of God. He has revealed his power in a number of ways, by judgment throughout the world, in history past, and he will do that yet. It says, he grew up before him like a tender shoot. There's our picture of the stump and the, and the, and the shoot. A root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of sorrows, familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised. And we held him in low esteem. We'd love to think of Jesus as sort of floating a few inches above the ground. He's, the clothes never get dirty. He has a halo. Uh, but, but do we really want him that way? Some people make him that way. Physically, Jesus wasn't impressive. He was despised, it says. This word despised in the Hebrew language means to be made light of or even to be scoffed at. Now, we learn, we learn life completely different, different than, than, than the way Jesus did his ministry. Because if you go take, have an interview, what do you do in your interview? You are giving your highlight reel at an interview, not your blooper reel, right? It's your highlight reel, the school you went to, the degree you got, who you've worked for, what you're able to do. You put your best forward. It's self-assertiveness because... because the prospective employer wants to know, are you worth investing in? What are the signs of success that you can show me that convince me you're the one we should hire, right? That's how we're trained. That's how we're shaped. You look at Jesus. It's not the way of him at all. There wasn't a thing in his appearance that would draw us to him. He had no money, no connections, no credentials. Nothing that would not make people look Look up and see his indicators of success. It's not there. And yet, even though he wasn't impressive by physical appearance, there was something that drew people to him. He taught as one having authority, not as one of the other religious teachers of the law. There was the way and the people he engaged with, the, the unlikely ones that he took notice of. We're better at it at Christmas than other times, Right? We notice those who are disenfranchised and marginalized better at Christmas and other times that it ought, to be, it ought to be one of the indicators that we are connected with Jesus Christ. We're always drawn to those who are hurting and who are the, who are the, the ones who are far off. He, when he went to Nazareth, you remember, you know, they, they, they were going to stone Jesus there because, he, because of his claim. He, he, he was reading out of Isaiah the prophet, so they picked up rocks. How dare you say you're the fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah? We wiped your nose. We changed your diapers. We know you. But they didn't, did they? You know, 
in the Christian life, we, we need this message. By the way, somebody said one time, their eyes could not penetrate the veil of ordinariness around him. This is the temptation of the Christian life, you know. We go for the spectacular. When you come to a worship service, you can measure worship by how much spine tingling went on. That's dangerous, you know. As Christians, we want to know the mountaintop. In fact, if we don't have enough mountaintops, because everybody has their highlight reel on Facebook or Instagram, it seems like my life is pretty dull. So if I don't have enough mountaintops, there must be something missing and wrong with me. Friends, you cannot live for the mountaintops. Will you have them in life? Maybe. But most of life, in my experience, is not about mountaintops at all. It's about day in and day out faithfulness to the Lord. It's about staying in his word. It's about staying in prayer. It's about staying in community. It's about, it's about driving deep down within us what it means to be a child of God and how to stay in a relationship with him. Did that, does that describe you today? Now, the world knows we're meeting now. You know, they know, and they come in here, and you know, we're all, just look around you. We're pretty ordinary. There are a couple of you that stand out. Well, no, not even you. you know? <laughs> Most of us are pretty ordinary, regular people, right? There's nothing that the world should take note of us and say, man, I want to, huh? But no, we can become like that as we become like King Jesus. Nothing about our physical appearance. But something about our nature, the way we speak, our kindnesses, our facial expression, the way we engage people that other people don't engage, the way we take time to listen to people. You see, that's what becomes extraordinary. That's what become, how we become different from the world. That's how we make a mark as we become like Jesus. That's the fruit that we're to bear because he is the branch, and he comes alive in us. I remember, I remember going to Dayton International Airport years ago and picking up Dr. Garland Bear, who was going to lead our church in a great giving season for mission work. I didn't know, didn't know him from Adam. Dr. Bear had been a missionary in Thailand. He uh, spent uh, last decades of his life as the University of Nebraska doctor, campus doctor. So I go to pick up, I have, I have Dr. Bear's name on a piece of board, you know, cardboard. He comes off, I, this guy is unimpressive. He's about 5'7", wormy looking, very diminutive in body, hunched over a bit, puppy dog eyes, and I'm thinking, this guy is going to bless us. And when he spoke, I was shamed. I was left undone. Because when he started speaking, I thought, this man knows the Lord. And every time I saw him in the years to follow, he was always seeming to be the one that sought me out to encourage me. Jesus, unimpressive. 
You may feel like, I'm a shy person. I'll never impact anybody. Oh, yeah? You may think you're not gifted enough, not attractive enough, not talented enough. Do not, do not rob God of the joy of working in you in such a way that people are drawn to you by who you are. An ordinary person like you and me. That's how he works. That's how Jesus was. Yet he was astounding. He changed the world. Third, he was sent, yet it was voluntary. Sent, yet voluntary. Verses 4 through 6. Surely he took up our pain and he bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We know that text well. We've heard it. He took up. That, that phrase in Hebrew, he took up, is stronger than just picking something up. It also carries with it the idea, he, picked, he took it up and put it on. Both images are there in that Hebrew phrase. He took up and put on. His death was, now his death was planned for, Paul writes, before the foundation of the world. God planned to send his son because in his foreknowledge he knew that Adam was going to introduce sin into the world. And we would, we would bear that curse because of the sin nature we have. Now, in time, God's answer was to send his only son, his one only son, into the world. Yet, Jesus knew what it was and what it meant and willingly laid down his life. He even said when he was crucified, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own. And he did. Why? Because he looked at you. He looked at me. And he was moved by that. Now, there are critics in the world, naysayers who say, well, Lots of people lay down their lives for good causes in the world. There being all kinds of people laid down their lives for good causes. Here's the difference, friends. They all ultimately have to die. Now, we can affect how we die to some extent. We can stop receiving food or water. We can decide we're not going to go through chemotherapy. And we can have maybe some say sometimes some, some people sadly even take their lives when they lose all hope. But Jesus is the only person who ever lived in history that was not found in the hold of death's grip. He's the only person who ever lived that did not have to die because he never sinned. He was the sinless son of God. He's the only one, therefore, who truly, fully, voluntarily laid down his life. Why? Because he saw you and me. Does that melt you? Does that evoke in you? This astounding love and movement in you. That's why in a few minutes when we take the emblems, we keep taking it in, in deep recognition of this one and what he did for us, this servant king, dying in our place. Fourth, he's innocent, yet convicted. He's innocent, yet convicted. The text goes on to say he was oppressed and afflicted, Yet he did not open his mouth. How are you when you're oppressed? Do you open your mouth? I bet you do. Right? Retaliation is what comes natural, right? Getting even? 
or I hope they get theirs. He was oppressed and afflicted. He did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter as a sheep before its shears is silent. So again, he did not open his mouth. You know how stupid sheep are? It is not a kind thing to compare us to sheep. You've heard this before, probably, but they're, 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 they, they are morons. They, they have to have a shepherd. Luke told me, told the other service about true story. I'm telling them it's true, so it better be true. Okay. <laughs> it happened in Turkey, and in Turkey there were these sheep herders. They were over 1,500 sheep, and one of those sheep wandered to the edge of the cliff and jumped Who's ever heard of a suicidal sheep? I've never heard of that. I'd be rather sheepish to do such a thing. But this, this, this sheep jumped, and all 1,500 followed it over the cliff. True story. If you don't believe me, ask Luke. Okay. Now, thankfully, only the first 450 died because that provided a nice pillow for the others that followed wasn't such a bad thing for them, right? <laughs> That's his too. All right. Like sheep. So. How many stories could you tell about stupid things when you wandered away? I could tell you a whole hostful. I'm not, but I could. Decisions I've made without seeking the Lord, things I've said, times I've opened my mouth in retaliation or in anger or to get even. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. There we go. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken. It was a total miscarriage of justice. Those trials, his arrest, the trials, the Jews broke their own laws to getting crucified. It was a kangaroo court through and through. No deceit, no wrongdoing, no violence, no insurrection treated as a common criminal, and Pilate knew it. His wife even came out to warn him. Don't have anything to do with this. You don't want to get your hands dirty on this one. I've had a dream. And so Pilate, thinking he's going to wash his hands clean, symbolically washes them and says, "I, I find no fault with him. I'm innocent of this man's blood. Of course he wasn't, and neither are you and me. It reminds us of how unjust our world... Have you ever been treated unjustly? Have you ever been missed for a promotion because somebody else, you know, got next to the boss? Or somebody lied about you? Or you weren't represented right? Anybody in your extended family talk about you on the phone to somebody else? And what they say are mistruths and you are made out to be a black sheep? Boy, you want to raise up and retaliate, right? But our... Savior is a servant king. Our whole world, friends, is filled with injustice. You can't go anywhere in any country of the world and find perfect justice. 
In Asia, there's a, a man who was in jail because he would not sell his land to the mayor of the town. So they found trumped up charges, the mayor did, to put him in jail. He was there for two years. The court officials wouldn't do anything because they were friends of the mayor and that's how they got their jobs. So the guy continued to suffer. In Honduras is a man who's an Indian and uh, in, in need. But there's a lot of racism there as there is racism in our country. And uh, they neglected him. And he was with other Indians in a peaceful way approaching the government centers and soldiers began firing, shot the man in the face, lost his job, his home, all source for support because of injustices. A college student in one of our inner cities went and worked for a summer, led several street people to Christ. One was a young lady. He came back at Christmas break to check on them. The young lady had gone back to prostitution, and he was so saddened by that. He sought her out, found her, and said, why did you do this? You came to Christ. Why did you go back to your old life? And she said, because the men came to me and said, if you don't do what we say, we're going to kill your father. What was I to do? And he said, why didn't you go to the authorities? And she said, you must be idiotic. It's the authorities that came to me to force me to do it. Such injustice. The stories go on and on. When Jesus was born, his life began as one treated unjustly. Had to flee to Egypt, you know, because King Herod was out to kill him. And it closed with another king, an emperor determined to do him in. And so don't be surprised when you're treated unjustly because you're a follower of this, of this servant king. Don't be surprised at that. But how about surprising other people by the way you deal with it? And finally, he's vicarious, yet satisfied. That's a word we don't use very often. Sounds rather religious, but it's a good word. Our text says this, beginning in verse 9, He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was the seed in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. Do you see that? If you're one to underline things, write that. He was satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong. Because he poured out his life unto death, he was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. More than 10 times in this text today, this song, Jesus is spoken of, this, this servant king to come, uh, speaking of one doing something, put something put on him that wasn't his. Like in verse 4, our sorrows were put on him. Our punishment, verse 5, was put on him. In verse 12, he was numbered with us. In other words, he was treated as a sinner like we are. So that we can be treated as a child of God as he is treated as the son of God. 
high and exalted with his Father in heaven. Verse 11 says, by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. That means we are declared righteous even while we're still struggling with sin. Under the blood of Christ, that's the good news of the gospel. You see, salvation is completely God's idea, and the major theme of the Bible is substitution. That's the theme of the Bible. It's about surrendering to gain. It's about giving up, giving up your life for the best life. That's how it works. What would happen if you get married? You say to your fiancé right, uh, right before the wedding, day four, by the way, hon, I love you, but don't think I'm going to change my life. I want my Friday nights and Saturday nights with my buddies, and you can go with your ladies, but I'm not staying home. Good luck on that one, right? What if you're having a child, and you say, yeah, I want to have a baby, but I'm not about to get up in the middle of the night and feed that kid. I'm going to have a baby, but I don't expect me to change any diapers. How good is that marriage going to be? What if you decide to live like a single person raising children? You want to raise a dysfunctional family? That's a good way to do it. A kid grows up to be insecure. What would happen if a church, if a whole church just cares about itself? What if we only cared about insiders and forgot about outsiders? What kind of blessing would God bring on a church like that? We ought to be much more concerned with outsiders than we are one another in here. Because we're on our way to heaven, right? By the blood of Christ. So many aren't. So we lay down ourselves that we may have life. C.S. Lewis wrote, the principle runs through all life from top to bottom. Give up yourself and you'll find your real self. Lose your life and you'll save it. Submit to death death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day, and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being, and you'll find eternal life. Keep coming, keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will be really yours. We end up with a small life. We try so hard not to be appalling and to be beautiful our own way. So we go to the gym all the time, to try to stay younger, longer. We buy new clothes to look better. We change hairstyles, you know. We cover the gray. How much time do we spend really allowing Christ to make us beautiful? It says in our text, he's going to give the spoils. You know what the spoils are? The spoils, the fruit of the Holy Spirit who lives within us. We get the power of God within us. You remember Beauty and the Beast? The beast is beastly. Ugly as sin. He brought it on himself. But then Bell kisses him, and he becomes this handsome guy, right? I've got one better. The one we're praising today became beastly by his own will. He took beastliness on himself when he died on the cross for our sins. That was a, that was a, he became beastly of his own doing so that when we, who are the true beastly ones, kiss him, we become beautiful. 
because of what he's done. What other religion of the world can offer anything like that? Nothing. They pale in comparison to what we have in Jesus Christ, the servant king. If you don't know him, please let us walk with you to this great place to be in him and let him let him be the one that makes you beautiful from the inside out. And so now we are going to hold a little piece of bread and drink some juice. It's the most precious part of our worship because here we get to have a meal with Jesus, our Savior. We're having a meal with him and we're doing it together in community because I need you members of the body of Christ to walk with me and you need me we're in this together and he's our host and he welcomes us here in spite of how our week's gone maybe you've had brilliant week this week maybe you've really blown it this week but you're at the right place right now to meet with Jesus let's pray our father we thank you for this high and holy one laid down his life that we might have this meal together it's one the world doesn't understand father but it's precious to us so here we partake of the body of Christ and the blood of Christ and are so thankful we've been brought near because of his supreme sacrifice so father in this season we are thankful for this Christ child that, Father, we dare not tuck him away as a, in, in a sentimental way, simply as a baby in a manger, but we acknowledge that he is Lord of life. He is the servant king who came to rescue us. May he be highly praised as we remember in Jesus' name.